afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Duver and I are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara and uh, at, at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and in Montecito's Upper Village and Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Happy Monday, Neil. I see that you've, you've gotten a haircut during this I, pandemic time. Nice work. I did. Uh, by the way, the reason I messed up the introduction is I'm so excited about the refloating of the evergreen in the Suez Canal. <laughs> I just I just can't stop thinking about it. You know, the impact globally of that boat being stuck there was, you know, was crazy. Why? You planning on taking a cruise through the Suez? No, but I just mean shipping for goods and services, you know, not services, but goods, you know, there were it, it created quite a kerfuffle in the um, supply chain. So we have with us today, Christine Roberts, who's a partner at Mullen and Henseld. She is an ERISA attorney, which means that she helps businesses prevent and fix problems with their employee benefit plans to preserve their tax qualified status. Chris, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Neil. So the first article we have is a follow-up of our uh, discussion last week of NFTs. NFTs, if you recall, are non-fungible tokens. They're uh, uh, internet, internet uh, created uh, tags that go on anything and provide you with the ability to sell almost anything. And as we discussed in the craziness, people are selling uh, YouTube videos, pictures of themselves, and for uh, quite a bit of money. So the New York Times correspondent who wrote the article last week decided to try something. And in an article this week, um, he talks about what he did, which was to um, offer uh, the actual article. He took the article from last week and framed it on the New York Times article and framed it. And he put it out there to sell uh, as an NFT. So... uh, he got five hundred and sixty thousand dollars for it. For the New York five, Times piece. For the the piece of paper, five. He could not believe it. So, he, what he did is, and, and by the way, he said he would give it to charity, which he did. Uh, but what was um, really unbelievable is, it turns out that every NFT auction produces a public record of the bids. So he was able to go back this week and call all of the people that bid, all of the losers, and ask them why they bid on this thing. And the answers are pretty interesting. Um, one person said that uh, he believed that uh, crypto tokens will eventually be like owning rare first edition books or priceless paintings. And if you think about Andy Warhol's uh, painting of a Campbell soup can, uh, you know, it doesn't sound as crazy as it sounds right now, talking about paying $560,000 for this thing. Another person said that um, uh, he did it for the fun of it. And because he knew that 
he wouldn't win. He only bid, only bid $2,000. He wanted to show people that he was in the game. So he did it in order to get his name as one of the bidders. Uh, another person said that the um, uh, idea that this is a new paradigm, this is a new way. He, t he talks about Napster and how Napster, remember that was the uh, file sharing music uh, website. Uh, went out of business because there was no way to protect ownership of the songs. He said, this is a new paradigm. This is going to permit artists and musicians to really protect their uh, intellectual property. Um, and then one person said he had no idea why he did it, which I think is more emblematic <laughs> of what is going on here. And this is, you know, another example of the tulip craze uh, that started 400 years ago and it continues it continues today. You know, I keep telling people that there's a pent up demand for people to spend money as we've all been sheltered in place and kind of, you know, pent up in terms of not being able to get out there and do anything and spend money. This, I think, further that furthers that they just want to spend money. I can't believe it went for five hundred and sixty thousand dollars. You know, there is a book I'm going to mention called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which thanks to Google, I was able to pull the title up. It's a book I own. I, I haven't looked at it for a while, but it is about the tulip craze and about other sort of mass delusions, including, you know, witch trials and things like that. Um, Charles McKay, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And uh, you know, I'm not saying that NFTs are, you know, mass delusion, but yeah, this this craze phenomenon that that drives the value of things up rapidly is is a cyclical human phenomenon, and uh, people have studied it, and this will be thrown in with tulips and studied just like all these other cycles. Yeah, that's true. I forgot to mention at the end of the article, he talks about who actually won, and it was a um, uh, a Dubai citizen. And the conclusion there is there's just too much money floating around. People just don't know what to do with it. And so you've got, you know, you see it in, in, in uh, game stock and you see it in other <coughs> excesses. But when people have unlimited money, they just go ahead and buy anything. You know, if the market tanked and everybody's 401k and other IRA account balances went down by 50%, query whether this would be happening. Right. So the next article I think is really interesting uh, from a you know intellectual standpoint. It's market reshuffle has room to run. And what we've seen in the last month is a shift from stocks like uh, Tesla and uh, Apple into cyclical stocks. And what this article talks about is why this is something that may in fact last for a long time. And what they highlight here is, um, is is how stocks should be valued, you know, the old Graham and Dodd view, that you value a, a company based upon its future uh, earnings discounted at some appropriate discount rate. And the appropriate discount rate is considered to be or the risk-free rate plus inflation. So when you have a stock like Amazon or Google that is selling at you know 80, 90, 100, 1,000 times earnings, um, the discount rate that you, if you change the discount rate, it's very, very sensitive. So if you increase your interest rate assumption, then the discount rate goes up and the value of that stock based upon this analysis 
is is, is impacted dramatically. Um, uh, as the article said, that um, if a company uh, has an anticipated 20% growth in earnings for the next 25 years, and now earns a dollar a share, putting a discount rate of 6% on future earnings, um, if the yield goes up on the treasury note by 2%, the stock would, in this case, which was valued at 182, would automatically drop to 129. Now, the other side of it is cyclical stocks are also impacted by discount rates. But number one, the discount rate is smaller because they're valued less. But more importantly, if interest rates are going up because the economy is improving, their earnings, which have been depressed, these cyclical stocks, their earnings will go up offsetting part of the decline in um, discount rate. So based on that theory, there is a good reason why cyclical stocks should be outperforming as they are uh, high multiple growth stocks. Additionally, you have the whole value trade, which value has been out of favor for the last 10 years. So we're looking at a decade and it's the first time ever that value stocks have underperformed growth stocks over a, over a 10 year time period. And so when you look at that, you really we, we've seen since November a shift away from high tech growth companies leading the charge to cyclicals and small cap and value. And so, so what we're seeing, I think, is is a rotational shift of of the signs of a healthy market overall. You know, we are seeing some bubbling effect in the SPAC world, which which would seem normal. And so, SPACs are are risky, and it and it, and it seems like it's it's overinflated as the more and more you read about it in the news. Yeah, true. Uh, the next article is by Jason Swag, our, fav our favorite uh, uh, columnist from the Sunday, Saturday, Sunday Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled The Know-Nothings Running with the Bulls. Uh, and um, he quotes a TikTok video that was just published, and it, it says, I don't know what the F I'm doing. I just know I'm making money. And, you know, it's this know-nothingism when... Um, you look at it from the outside, you think everybody's nuts. But what this article talks about is that what you're seeing is, in some cases, people that would otherwise gamble are now gambling on the stock market. Mm -hmm. And the vigorish at Las Vegas is actually probably less attractive than the vigorish in the stock market. And when you go to Las Vegas, uh, or if you get a lottery ticket, the fun is very over, very quick. You know, you get a lottery ticket, you scratch it, and it's, it's over. But if you buy a stock, there's a, a long-term enjoyment factor. Even if the stock goes down, for some of these people, the idea of watching the stock go up and down, up and down, is fun. Now, again, we talked before about the tulip craze. I, I think this is a bad sign, but it helps us explain why so many young people are investing in things that they don't understand, don't care that they don't understand, because mm -hmm. for them, it's fun. Well, and I think it also goes back to the fact that there's so much cash on the sidelines and the fact that we're coming off this pandemic year where we haven't been able to do anything and spend any money and we're all stuck at home in front of our computers and it's something for people to do. And they feel like their bank accounts are bigger than they've ever been in the past because they haven't been able to spend any money. And the final article today is entitled, It May Be Time to Start Worrying About Estate Taxes. 
And um, the, uh, the article is focused on, obviously, what Biden's uh, policy changes may be. And what the most concerned uh, in terms of estate taxes is the stepped up basis, which um, means if the stepped up basis on, at death, where the value of an asset is uh, marked to market up to the current price, there's no capital gain to the beneficiaries. They're really seriously talking about eliminating the benefit of a stepped up basis. Um, secondly, you know, I have to say that that you know, from from where I sit, and I, I deal with lots of estates that settle, they would be better. I think our government would be better served lowering the estate tax dollar amount from you know close to what is it, eleven point four million dollars per person, moving that down and still remaining with that step up. You often have a situation where the decedent is very wealthy and the heirs are not very responsible with money or wealthy. And so for them to get this lump sum and then have to pay tax on it, I think we're we're setting people up for failure. Yeah, I, and uh, that leads us to the second part of the article, which says just what you said. That is, there's an alternative and that is just raising the, or lowering the, the amount of uh, exemption. Uh, and that's being talked about as an alternative. So you're on the same wavelength, Diana, as the uh, as the smart people in the in the Biden administration. Well, I think they probably went back to 2010, where the estate tax went to zero and the step up was limited to a million. It became quite a kerfuffle for estates and for beneficiaries, and hopefully they don't go down that path again. Yeah, if you died in that year, you, two bad things happened to you. You ended up having to pay an incredible amount of taxes, and you also died. Um, <laughs> uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. Back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. If you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having Christine Roberts, partner at Mullen and Hensel, with us today. Christine provides jargon-free assistance to employers in all aspects of their qualified retirement plan design, operation, and termination in compliance with ERISA, which as a business owner, I find to be we are so blessed to have you in, in our community because ERISA is a complex legal nightmare for those of us who do not have Chris um, to kind of wrap your head around and really get through to make sure that you're following all of the rules. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So this is your second time on our show, but remind us of your background and tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I, like you, am from Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but I'm from the Boston suburbs um, and my family's still back there. Um, I um, went to college back there and came out to Southern California for UCLA Law School and moved to Santa Barbara in January of 1994, about 18 hours before the Northridge earthquake hit LA. Um, I bet your parents were so thrilled. (laughs) Yeah, they were. And I've been at Mullen since 1997. And, um, you know, I'm very blessed to be part of such a great, uh, I think of it as a community. It's a family community. It's a, it's a wonderful group of people. And 
we had a really interesting year last year um, and um, are going strong. Right. You're, so, so your firm actually has added quite a few new attorneys. We have. We, we most recently added two new associates, Linda K uh, Kachak and Sean Stratford-Jones in the estate planning and labor litigation departments, respectively. Um, yeah, it was a busy year last year. There was a lot of um, COVID and PPP-related work, and estate planning was on fire because of, I think, an awareness of mortality and a, and a knowledge that, as we said in the lead-up to this interview, uh, estate planning rules were going to change under Biden. And so, so, you know, you, fortunately, the pandemic has been, has been uh, a, not a good thing, obviously, but your firm and your business has, has benefited from the, the, the rise of markets and the rise of people just being more aware of what's going on out in the world and our mortality. Yeah, I mean, we've been blessed with really good management for a really long time. And so when the pandemic came, we were able to pivot really smoothly to a remote way of functioning. Um, and, um, you know, we were just able to capitalize on the legal issues that arose, serve our clients. We've got, you know, a signing. We can, people can come and sign documents in a covered area in our parking lot. And, um, you know, we just, we just, because of long-term good management, we were able to pivot smoothly. And I think, I think we've benefited from that. Um, yeah. That's great because, you know, many, many businesses weren't as, um, as well managed and consequently, you know, had a harder time with that pivot, but it sounds like you yeah. guys flourished and expanded. It, your, it's kind um, of like that saying, the harder I work, the luckier I get. I think, I think that's, <laughs> I think that was a little bit of it. You Not, know, there, there, yeah. there's, a, there's an article in today's New York Times about a major New York law firm uh, that is considering not renewing its lease wow. because they don't, believe they need anywhere near as much space. Do, yeah. do you think that your expansion this year was partly due to the fact that you didn't have a space constraint? Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I know that, um, you know, we're looking at, you know, we're looking at all different, I think, I think a lot of service providers are looking at their footprint and saying, do we need all these separate offices? Do we maybe need childcare? Do we maybe need flex offices? I mean, I think I have a feeling that footprints are going to remain the same, but that the activity inside the footprint might might change as a result of COVID, as a result of people working part-time from home. Um, so so I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think that I think that the way the office looks is going to change long term. So, so so tell us, does Mullen and Hensel, do you think you will continue to have work from home or remote working options? I don't know. I think I, I think that there will there already had been. We are we for years, for over 10 years, we've had people working remotely in some instances. So I don't think that you know, so I think remote work has been a part of our landscape for quite a while and will remain a part of our landscape. I don't know the degree to which because I'm one of those people who's just a plain old attorney at the firm and not part of management in any way, shape, or form. So what I say is just my opinion. <laughs> um, but I do think that, you know, because we had more than 10 years of remote work that it will continue to be to be part of the picture. Yeah. No, and that makes sense. It's such an yeah. attorney statement there. <laughs> Do you think that it would be helpful that we make an appeal on the radio to to make you a senior partner of the firm? <laughs> I think 
I'm senior already by, by dint of my birth date. And I think I'm happy being a partner of any way, shape or form. And I think firm management is a super specialized set of skills that I don't think I possess, but I'm really lucky that I work with some super people in that, in that field because I've, I've done a good job. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about what the SECURE Act is. Well, we have two SECURE Acts afoot, don't we? We have, we the, we have the SECURE Act, the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act, which, which is law, and we have the um, SECURE 2.0, um, which is not law yet. It's the Securing a Strong Retirement Act, which is a proposal. So let's, let's talk about the law we have. Uh, the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act, um, which is the biggest piece of pension legislation since 2006. Um, and it passed, it passed back in, in 2020. December 1999? It, with December 2019, yeah, it's technically the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Act Enhancement Act of 2020, but yeah, I do think it passed at the very end of 2019. It was one of those sort of squeezing in at the end of the year, oh my God, I don't believe this really happened pieces of legislation, because it was tacked onto a budget bill that squeaked in at the very end. Um, so yeah, um, what do you want to know? I mean, it is it is a jam-packed piece of legislation, and there's just a lot of stuff in there. What 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 are you most curious about? Well, what would be what what are what are the things that lo our local businesses should be concerned about? Um, well, I mean, business business owners. Um, have business succession issues and wealth succession issues to think about. And I mean, one of the biggest things that the SECURE Act did was it got rid of what, what is known as the stretch IRA. It got rid of the ability to spread family wealth over very long life expectancies of young um, designated beneficiaries. It just, it just dumped that out. Uh, in fact, the legislator who proposed the SECURE Act said, we're basically dialing IRAs back to the way they were meant to be in 1974, which was to leave assets to a spouse. Um, and um, that's kind of what they do. The only way you can stretch um, IRA, IRA wealth over um, any period of time beyond 10 years is really to leave it to a spouse or if you have a disabled um, beneficiary. Um, everyone else has to take the money out within 10 years. So, so now that, yeah. on that point, because uh -huh. it used to be that it would stretch out over the beneficiary's lifetime and there was a required man, uh, minimum distribution every year that the right. beneficiary would take. Right. Right. Now with this spread over 10 years, it's really, they can take it at their, at their will. It just has to yep. be emptied at the 10 year mark. You're, right. you're absolutely right, Diane. At, you know, at the December 31 of the, of the, of the year containing the 10th anniversary of death of the account holder, it's gonna be empty. You can take it all out in year one, you can take 20% out over five, you can 10% out over 10, you just gotta get it out by that deadline. Um, and so, yeah, so it's different because those required minimum distributions aren't really required within that period as long as the account's empty by the 10 year deadline. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB and we'll be right back. Brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. 
It's interesting, picking up uh, where we left off on the stretch IRAs of the SECURE Act, I'm finding that clients are really struggling with it because they want to know what they have to take out every year as opposed to having this, you know, what is the IRS making me take out? And I say, you don't have to take out any this year. It just has to be empty by the 10-year mark. Well, right, because it requires them to try to think about tax brackets and about income levels 10 years in the future. And um, it requires a certain amount of crystal ball um, functioning that people aren't usually comfortable with. They'd much rather be told that look at this actuarial table, look at your balance as of last year, and this is the amount you take out. They really are much more comfortable with that. Um, right. So, yeah. I, so I feel like, what do you think is going to happen? I, I feel like many people, especially those that are working with an advisor, might at the end of 10 years have a balance in that account. And what will happen? What's the, what is the penalty on that if there is one? I didn't see it expelled out, but I'm sure. Yeah, it's a 50% excise tax on what's mm-hmm. in there that should have been should have been taken out. Now, the new Secure 2.0 might reduce that excise tax, but right now it's a nice round 50%, which is really to be avoided if at all possible. Another thing for business owners that the Secure Act did was require um, 401k salary deferral participation by long-term part-time workers. People who work 500 hours or more for three consecutive years have to be allowed to make salary deferrals. Um, And that won't come into full effect till 2024 because of the need to count the three full years. Um, But that's, you know, that's, that's a change. Um, You know, the ability to keep people out um, if they don't work a thousand hours has been a part of the retirement landscape since, ERISA was created and that's ebbing away and it's becoming a 500 hour rule for part-time for part-time people. You don't have to put employer money in for them, but you have to let them make salary deferrals. So, so now let's say you do a safe Harbor for all of mm-hmm. your employees. Mm-hmm. Would you have mm-hmm. to include them in that safe Harbor? You know, that's, no, you, 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 you know, you don't that Diane's talking about a safe Harbor formula is a formula that lets employers put um, sort of the maximum salary deferrals for higher paid people, as long as they put in a minimum amount of employer money. And um, for for this for 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 this group of the long term part time people with the 500 hours for three or more years, um, they they don't have to get any employer money. They they um, they're they're outside of non discrimination testing. Um, so so it's really just an you know a requirement. But I'll tell you one thing that is really important for business owners to know about that rule is that once they are allowed to defer, they become a participant. Once they become a participant, now you're looking at a mid-sized business having 100 or more participants in their 401k plan. When they have 100 or more participants, they have to pay for an audited report on their plan from a CPA firm every year. And it's like a 10 or $15,000 bill. So once, you know, so people who are under 100 participants right now should realize that this could bump them into that category of having to have audited financials in their plan every year and be prepared for that bill and be shopping uh, good CPA auditing firms and firms that do a lot of 401k audits because that's, so that, that's a pretty significant expense. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so also with the SECURE Act, the, the original, the 2020, mm-hmm. there, it, it, raised, it raised the um, age in which you had mm-hmm. to start taking required minimum distributions to right. 70. Right. Now, do you think that's something that's going to stay? Um, I think it's going to get older. Um, you know, back when ERISA was created in 1974, I mean, people retired at 65 and maybe lived 10 or 15 years, right? 
Um, and so having to start taking your money money out at 70 and a half didn't seem like it was forcing you to take money out very long because maybe you live 10, 10, 15 years. Now people are living into their 90s. And so having to start taking your money out at 70 and a half seems kind of like a burden. So it's been pushed from 70 and a half to 72 under the existing SECURE Act and SECURE 2.0, which we'll talk about in a minute, will push it out to 75. And it would also exempt some, some people who have total savings of $100,000 or less in retirement accounts from having to take those distributions at all. Wow, that could be really helpful. Yeah. You know, yeah. That compounding interest and yeah. less really grow for you. Yeah. Those yeah. five years are yeah. really impactful. Yeah, the whole required minimum distribution concept is kind of a buck stops here concept. The government says, look, you can defer, you know, you can you can grow this tax free only so long. <laughs> you know, at 72, we consider you, you know, it's time to start enjoying your retirement and paying tax on that money. Now, maybe it will be 75. And, and like I said, maybe that exemption will will keep people out of the game altogether if they've, they've got, you know, sort of a smaller total asset pile. Now, this, we, this is a, this is another really important reason for having a financial advisor. You know, listening to the two of you, this is really esoteric stuff. And a typical individual or small business owner is not going to probably have a lawyer like you on retainer. So, uh, and you won't even realize that things are changing. So, you know, this is another important element in what a financial advisor can do. Absolutely. I mean, financial advisors, I mean, Diane and her team, uh, they they are the ones that convey this stuff in jargon free terms that their clients can understand um, and, and, and stay abreast of the laws and 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 totally get this information down to the consumer level. And it's an important function. Gee, that's interesting because when I was on Wall Street, I used to think that the more jargon, the better. I'd like jargon. Well, <laughs> jargon, um, yeah, you know, yes, it, it saves time for practitioners <laughs> and specialists, and it excludes people who aren't practitioners and specialists. So, uh, it, it, yeah, it, 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 in a sales context, it can it can have a function, but I'm luckily not in the sales business. My dad, my dad and my brother is, are back in New England, and I, I have no skills in that department. <laughs> well, you know, the problem with jargon is that people, you know, you can't keep it. it if that's not your profession, you can't keep it all straight. And consequently, yeah. they're like, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Half half of my clients keep calling me saying, how come I haven't gotten a 1099 for my IRA from last year? And I'm, I, I keep having to say, because remember, you didn't have to take out the, the RMD. You were exempt yeah. last year. Yeah. They're like, yeah. oh yeah, that's right. You know, because yeah. it's, they're just going through their tax stuff, collecting yeah. various documents, and they had one yeah. last year. Yeah. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSP, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. So, Chris, what impact did the SECURE Act have in this in the student um, arena, meaning, you know, the 529 plan accounts, which those are the accounts that you can put money that grows tax-free, provided you use it for education? 
It lets you use some of those account balances for student loan payments and apprenticeship programs. Um, apparently there's an aggregate. I don't work with 529 plans very often, full disclosure, but they are tax-free savings devices for college tuition. And now under Secure Act, they allow uses of funds for student loans. I guess it's an aggregate lifetime limit of 10,000 in student loan payments per 529 beneficiary and 10,000 per sibling. So if you had two kids, that would be 20,000, which, you know, depending on the school you go to, could make a pretty good dent. Oh my goodness. I have two nieces applying for colleges in the fall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the schools that they're applying to, and they're, they're not Ivy Leagues, are $70,000 a year. You know, it's it's yeah. a real and there's some concern that they might be going back remote for seventy thousand dollars a year, which yeah. is just shocking, right? You yeah. know, paying yeah. seventy thousand dollars a year to sit in your bedroom on on your computer seems just incomprehensible. Yeah, there's a NYU uh, business school professor named Scott Galloway who's uh, got a business, a sort of startup that's trying to sort of provide some credentialing services in a very kind of low cost way, and he believes that. The ultimate luxury brand in America is not, you know, Gucci or or it's it's higher education. It's the ultimate luxury brand, and that they have sort of continued to extract increasing amounts of money for these luxury um, names, and that with COVID and the you know the inability to have the campus experience, it's it's really exposing that whole bargain in a way that it's never been exposed before, and it's 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 a very I think I think we will see some changes in that regard. Um, but yeah, you can use the 529 accounts for student loan repayments. And um, in Secure 2.0, which may pass at some point this year, um, there is talk about allowing employer matching contributions based not on employee salary deferrals, but on employee student loan repayments. So imagine that you've got a student loan, you repay your student loan, let's say it's $500 a month, your employer puts money in your 401k account based on your student loan repayment um, so that you aren't harmed by repaying your student loan and not making your 401k salary deferrals. You kind of get, you get your cake and eat it too a little bit. You pay off your student loan and you get your employer to put a little money in your retirement account for your student loan repayment. That's a proposal, huh. but that is on the table. I feel like that could be a tracking nightmare. <laughs> uh, yeah. To tell me about it. Absolutely. And of course, the thing, the thing about fintech now is that every time you get a thing like this, um, a business pops up to service it, right? So there will be businesses just like with this whole new focus on um, emergency savings accounts. There are all of these businesses that are popping up to allow employers to help employees develop um, emergency savings accounts that are not tax qualified, but are just sort of like cash savings accounts. Um, you know, apps and things. I mean, they, they all come with apps. They all come with, you know, um, software. And so, yeah, I totally agree. It's a, a nightmare in concept, but hopefully somebody will pop up and create a business that makes it easier for employers to, to track. So it, so we've talked a lot about the Secure Act 2, 2.0, I guess is yeah. how we say it. So, yeah. so tell us generally what, what it is going to do. Okay. Okay, securing a strong retirement after 2020 was introduced in the House of Representatives in October 2020. Um, it is another, you know, laundry basket of things that would sort of goose access to retirement savings on a lot of different fronts. It would, it would, it would increase access to employer-sponsored retirement accounts. It would sort of um, allow people in their later years to maybe not have to take those RMDs we talked about. 
um, there's a whole bunch of, um, of provisions that, uh, so typically what would small business owners, what should they be aware of? Right. Well, for instance, so that secure 1.0 provision about the long-term part-time, if they've worked 500 more hours in three years, secure 2.0 would ratchet that down to two years. Okay. So that would, it would accelerate that. It would also require, if you set up a new 401k plan, it would require you have automatic enrollment and automatic escalation or deferrals. So you wouldn't, you know, a small business owner wouldn't have the ability to, to choose whether to have automatic enrollment. It would be mandated. Now, what do you, what impact do you think that's going to have? Because I, I guess this legislation is assuming that people, if given access, would save, right? Because what, what the government's trying to do is have people be self-sufficient in retirement. Right. Do you think that that is in fact the case? In your experience, are you seeing people that want to want to defer but aren't allowed to for some reason, whether it be, you know, part-time employer, employee? Um, depends on the industry. There are certainly industries where the disinclination to save is there because the wages are low, there's a lot of turnover. There may be, uh, you know, it, I, I think it depends on the industry. Um, and also you have the rise of the state auto IRA programs like CalSavers, which right. is sort of picking up the slack. Yeah. Um, so that's picking up the slack in some states, but really only in a very small handful of blue states did have those measures um, thrived. And um I think the Biden administration is going to be more friendly to the state auto IRA programs than the, the Trump administration. The Trump administration fought CalSAVERS tooth and nail. Um, Get and, back and just tell us a yeah. little bit of what CalSAVERS is CalSAVERS, again. CalSAVERS is a state-run program that says that if your employer doesn't have a retirement plan, then when you are hired, you there will be a, a Roth IRA set up for you, um, which you will automatically money from your salary will automatically go to that Roth IRA, which will be managed by um, State Street through this, you know, a relationship with the state of California and it's portable. So, um, you know, it it doesn't disappear or 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 you don't have to roll it over. Yeah, 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 it doesn't it, it's not tied to any one employer. So in theory, you can make be making contributions to CalSAVERS through a number of different employers. Um, but it is a state-run IRA program for people whose employers don't sponsor any retirement plan. And as of June 30 of this year, if you have 50 or more employees and you don't set up a retirement plan by that date, your employees will start getting enrolled in CalSAVERS, um, you know, automatically. And and so is there a penalty to the business to have their employees um, sign up yeah. for CalSAVERS? Yes, there's a 250 per person penalty and it goes up to 500 if you get a notice from CalSAVERS that you ignore. So yeah, there are financial penalties for ignoring it. You know, for, for it's really a payroll function. There's not a lot of friction on the employer end to having it. But on the other hand, um, you can have an employee salary deferral only retirement plan that you put your name on and you mark it as a benefit of working for your company um, that really gets you, I think, a lot more goodwill with employees and just saying, oh, yeah, we don't have anything. So you're in the state program. Um, so, I mean, I think employers have to kind of think about whether even if they were kind of on the fence about a retirement plan, given that there's going to be retirement savings that they have to mandatorily en enable, you know, they, they, it might it might be the tipping point for them to sponsor something, even if it's just a SEP IRA or one of those very, very simplified um, pension programs. 
You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back with our final segment. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So Chris, in the SECURE Act 2.0, what would, what would be the catch-up contributions? I was reading that they are greater for those people over age 50. Currently, they are. Uh-huh. Now, will the number continue to go up? At the the 2.0 or 2.0 would would allow people 60 or more to contribute up to 10,000 additional over the 18.5 or whatever 19,000 limit for for regular 401k contributions. Um, so would would that go away with what the current catch up is at 50? The oh no, I, don't, I think it would be an add on. I think it would be an add on. Oh. I think I think yeah, no 50. No, that's not going anywhere. That's been that's statutory. That that so 50 and up, you'd get your 65 as it is now, and then once you get to 60, you could go from 65 to that additional up to 10. Um, so um, it would be an additional. Now, are there any, any controversial pieces of this Secure Act 2.0? I don't know that the SECURE Act itself is controversial, but the Biden administration itself was proposing replacing the 401k tax deduction with a tax credit. So sort of this wholesale um, abandonment of of a very fundamental part of our employment-based retirement system. I don't think that's going to go anywhere, but that that was pretty controversial. Right. And so how likely do you think uh, this is going to pass, the SECURE Act 2.0? So I don't think Biden's administration is going to get off the ground, but Secure 2.0, I think it's more likely than not we'll see some version of it passed in 2021. Um, A couple couple of things here. First of all, it has bipartisan support. Um, That's huge. That is huge. Um, It it is costly in that it increases retirement savings. And anytime you're increasing retirement savings, you're decreasing tax revenue, right? Because this money all grows tax-free and there's no revenue raisers in it. So um, so that could delay passage. And I think that, you know, Biden right now is talking about a kind of tax the rich and children and families and, uh, you know, tax businesses and, and maybe tax rich individuals to pay for business and family enhancements. I'm sorry, um, children and family enhancements. So I think if there's a big piece of legislation around either of those sort of business tax increase or family and children, then it might get tacked onto something like that or a budget bill. Um, and so I think that's that's going to kind of be how I don't know that it will make its way under its own steam. It might have to be tacked onto something that has more momentum. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. I, I, I'm no political, you know, I, I don't know a lot about politics, but I do know that it it probably is going to need the momentum of another big piece of legislation to get passed. Yeah. So, um, well, it, that's good to know that there isn't a lot of, um, you know, I kind of feel like part of the the give up that they're giving by, by having uh, retirees not have a mandatory distribution until 75, they may make up on that 10 year distribution rule instead of allowing people to, oh, you know, the amount, of money, the amount of money the federal government's going to make on that is, is ungodly. I mean, the, the loss of the stretch, uh, is, is a huge revenue raiser for the federal government. So, yeah. So I think all of this stuff probably in the big picture is sort of like, 
uh, chicken feed, <laughs> but um, but I, I I don't I don't know you know the, the CBO scoring of it. I, I don't know the fine right. Fine. I'd love to see, yeah. I'd love to see it, it go through CBO and you know the Congressional Budget Office and, and find out if it's if it's net neutral. Yeah, 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 and yeah. So um, I think we'll see something this year. I think it would be exciting if it happened, and um, it will. Um, you know, provide more talking points for people around their retirement savings. You know, uh, one last thing of my nephew just turned 25 and I asked him, uh, I, I hope to be able to put on my blog, a, a, a set of interview questions for him. What does retirement mean to you at the very beginning of your career? What is a discussion with your peers around retirement like? Is there any, is retirement even a meaningful word anymore for people in your cohort? And um, I'm really, I'm really kind of curious what answers I get from him. And, um, you know, I think focusing on retirement and money at any point in your life is important, but um, having a big piece of legislation to kind of focus our thoughts is it would be an interesting thing to. Well, come personally, with. I'd love to see some education done at the high school level, you know, around oh, safety, around oh, absolutely. and what yeah. it means and and how you can take how how it's independence and power. Never too well, early. Well, thank you, uh, Christine uh, Roberts. It was really informative. I wish I knew half of what you were talking about, but I think <laughs> Diane, but I think Diane did. Uh, and thank you all. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week.